it's honestly like changes hour by hour. I'm overall doing fine. You know, our, we're in a secure situation with my family and employment and our health and everything. But yeah, it's been, you know, I've always had anxiety and certainly this has been like the year of the most anxiety. Um, and a lot of mood swings and stuff like that. But I kind of amazed that, I don't know, that we got through this. Like I definitely, like, in January, when you were reading news articles, you know, about the pandemic, just like dreading and hoping it didn't get here. <laughs> I'm glad I didn't know anything then about what was coming. Yeah, I think about that a lot. I wonder if we would have been better suited if we would have known it was going to last as long as it did? Well, for sure. People would have been, in general, um, better suited. I mean, people did know. I mean, the president knew that it was coming. It did nothing. The year and a half or, you know, however long or two years or however long it will be at the end yeah. will be, I think, quite new that it was going to be that bad for that long. Yeah. I guess, like, when it started, I knew last in March, I mean, like when the shutdown started, I had a sense it would definitely be 18 months or more, <laughs> you know, like I definitely, I really felt like it was just permanent. I mean, I know that my feelings about like time are not very rational. It's just like the way I experience things. And so I was definitely like, okay, I will never see most of the people I know ever again, because most of us are going to die. And the ones that are surviving, like, this is it now. This is the way things are. We have letters and emails and phone calls. I have a really, really, I don't know if it's like, I have a lack of imagination. <laughs> it doesn't sound like a lack of imagination. In fact, it sounds like too much imagination. I mean, you were projecting a, a zombie movie, basically. I guess. I mean, I guess it's like, it's catastrophizing or whatever i mean it's just like whatever's happening gets magnified for me and so i did not downplay it ever in my mind what it was what was happening do you think there might be an upside to just projecting out the worst case scenario and you know inevitably not being quite that bad yeah i mean because then you're kind of delighted by the fact that things are not as bad as you thought they might be there can be relief in that. It also can help you prepare for things. You know, I feel like, well, I'm going to get thirsty, so I better pack water. I mean, that's the worst case scenario. I'm going to get so thirsty, <laughs> you know, um, as you prepare. I don't know. I mean, I think it's a good way to look at things. I think it's good to look at anxiety or depression or whatever you're experiencing or motivation or anything and just say all of these things have usually some benefits and some drawbacks. I mean, I look at like children's personal personalities that way my daughter's own personalities and i think like okay she procrastinates you know that's not something i missed i did because i think anxiety kept me from procrastinating i don't like having something hanging over my head so i get it done it obviously doesn't bother her as much so that's kind of a good thing like she procrastinates because she has less anxiety you know so something that i think is bad procrastination like isn't necessarily that bad it's just like another character trait and i think a lot of things are that way you know it's they provide benefits and drawbacks. Um, like if you're afraid of authority figures, afraid of your teacher, you know, by default or anybody who's sort of in charge or your babysitter, whatever, which I was, which also comes from anxiety, mm -hmm. made me more obedient because I was so afraid of getting in trouble. My daughter doesn't have that fear. <laughs> so she's like naughtier, but I would rather have like a naughtier kid that has less anxiety because it makes her happier. Has the past year exacerbated or accelerated your generalized depression for you? I haven't been that depressed. And I don't have generalized depression that much. I mean, it really like it comes and goes. Anxiety is a much, much bigger problem for me. I mean, my moods shift like very, very rapidly, you know, like within a day, I can go to like full extremes, and I often do. And there is a benefit to that also, and just that like, I can feel like I'm in the bottom of a pit. And I'll know, you know, okay, I might actually feel completely fine in an hour. But it also makes it harder to like plan things because I never know, you know, when it's going to come on necessarily. And like, it's very hard to plan with one personality for something that's I'm going to experience very differently when it actually comes time. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure, I'm sure there's a certain part of you that's just used to people, especially in interviews, perhaps just in life or people who read your comics asking you some like deeply personal questions because they <laughs> just assume that they know something about Cause there's a certain amount that you do put yourself out there just in the nature of doing 
autobiographical work. Yeah, no, and I'm comfortable talking about these things. I actually like, I use that a lot with my students and I have, you know, people do know, even people I don't know super well that like I can talk about mood stuff or, you know, extreme feelings without making it weird or, you know, it can be part of a casual conversation. I was diagnosed with bipolar in 2011, I guess, but I had like mood problems my whole life. And then MS was diagnosed in 2017 and they're really connected. Um, it's extremely common for people with MS to have depression. It's like 95%, at, at least at some point in your life. And bipolar is also like somewhat common comorbid state to have with MS. Um, and they don't really know why that is, but, um, MS causes anxiety. It causes like beyond other chronic illnesses. It's not just like, oh, I'm, I have a chronic illness. So of course, like I'm stressed out about that. Like it actually does things to your brain that create depression and create anxiety and stuff. Like it's lesions in your brain and some of them can be seen on an MRI and some can't. So it's always like, I don't know why I feel this way at any time. And a lot of times like it doesn't make any sense and it can be so extreme. There's actually like a condition in MS and it's, I don't know how to pronounce it. I hate these things that are like (laughs) so hard. It's like the pseudo something effect where you laugh and cry like uncontrollably and nobody knows what brings it on because you don't necessarily feel sad when you're laughing. Like you laugh at really inappropriate moments. And I do this, but I actually think it's because of my sense of humor. Like if somebody's bleeding and I know they don't need stitches or like an ambulance, like no, it's not a life threatening. If it's just like messy blood. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Then I find it extremely funny. Like I will not be able to breathe. I'll be crying and laughing so hard but i don't think that's this effect from ms i think it's just like like blood is very funny to me but i do cry like i there's something really weird about like the fatigue that has come on with ms when i suddenly i feel really overwhelmed really suddenly and extremely tired and i feel it like physically and mentally and it comes on like with no warning and i've gotten better at sort of like standing still and you know i don't know like dealing with it but I will often just like really cry suddenly you know something it doesn't there's just not a lot of warning it's just a a very sudden onset of this feeling and this need um to sort of melt down um which is different from depression I mean I think like when I used to just get sort of normally depressed you know it's more textbook like it comes on slowly and it's sort of all day and it seems like this you know impenetrable force in your life um, is detachment. I haven't felt that in a long time. It's just, I feel more like I'm on a roller coaster all the time. I mean, that's such a cliche, but it really is, or it's more like bad weather, you know, (laughs) it's uh, raining and sunny at the same time. And then suddenly it's hailing. Um, It's just like the unpredictable temperature change. So you brought up two examples and I I finished the book last night and so I can point to two very specific instances that are in my begging chart. There's one of, I guess, your husband having some scabs and bleeding on on the, the, the blanket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Obviously, like you were upset that there was blood on your blanket, but it's like it's played off like pretty, pretty casually. And then there's also a moment there that it's interesting to talk to you about this and to hear you say this, because there's a moment in there where you just kind of start crying suddenly and your daughter's there and she, she comforts you. And I, I just took it to be... You know, I think that happens to people, yeah. right? I mean, there are just like waves of sadness that hit us sometimes. Do you feel like that is an instance that is connected to this this thing you're talking about, these sorts of uh, sudden onset mood swings? Yeah, I mean, it, it's like, I'll never know, you know? I mean, maybe it is just because of the way I am, my personality, maybe it's the pandemic. I mean, it is like, I think... When the pandemic started, I, my one of my first thoughts was like, now everybody's going to understand what I feel like all the time, <laughs> you know? This is going to become like so normal that I could see people really panicking because they'd have these problems and it would seem, 
you know, they'd be like scrambling to maybe get a therapist for the first time or just like not know what to do. It's very stressful if you're not used to being like very emotional and then suddenly you are. And I felt like, well, (laughs) at least I've got practice. I'm so prepared. (laughs) When I started feeling like extremely out of control to a new level, which was when my daughter was a baby and I felt like my moods had achieved a level that was you know, beyond that needed professional help. This was postpartum. Yeah. I had a conversation with a good friend of mine and he was like, that was just like the way my mom was growing up. My friend would say on a regular basis, he would see his mom just like crying really hard and have sort of a meltdown, um, like monthly, you know, of course I'm thinking like it was probably PMS, but like it is really, really normal to have that extreme episode, you know, this mood episode, like Like, you can either call it normal. It's just part of, like, that's the way my mom is. That's the way my life is. You could look at it that way, or you could be diagnosed. And the only difference, really, the only purpose a diagnosis serves is if you are going to be medicated or treated in some way, like, it helps to guide that process. And so, like, like I do try to think about it normally without a label. Like, okay, maybe I'm not even bipolar. Maybe it was MS all along. Maybe it just, like, was hormones. It doesn't really matter whether you name it or not, or like if you establish how normal it is or how out of control it is or whatever. Like, I think those things are really, really fluid. And I think lots of people would look at my book and see me suddenly crying on the floor and say, that happens to me, that happens to regular people, because it really does. It's like, but we want to label everything are you an alcoholic or do you just have problematic drinking? You know, like we want to like pinpoint exactly where everybody is on the spectrum of everything. And it's not, it only really matters. Like I said, when you're getting down to like, how are you going to treat this? How are you going to act about it? You know, I think it's useful. Obviously it's useful to know what it is. And, And I suspect that his mother, they just thought it was a part of life because they probably weren't diagnosing it or at least weren't diagnosing it in in that way at that point and right. you know perhaps if she had known what it was she could have addressed it right i mean it, it was like stressful for her to go through this and stressful for him but it also doesn't mean that there isn't always a better route you know like um like i'm not medicated i don't have I don't, I'm not taking psychiatric drugs right now. I'm only on MS medication, you know, which doesn't help with that at all. You were on the past though? I was, yeah. Like when I was diagnosed, I was on lithium for years and Lamictal and benzodiazepine, you know, like Xanax and stuff like periodically, um, all that stuff. And I tried antipsychotics, like Abilify. I mean, I don't even recall all the drugs that I tried that didn't work out. But lithium and lamictal did really seem to help me, but the side effects got so bad and I seemed to be improving enough that it was worth the risk for me to take to try going off of them to see if the side effects would improve. It's hard to know though, right? It's hard to know if you're improving because of the drugs. You don't know. And then your life situation changes. And so it's like, (laughs) well, I think I'm doing worse now, but uh, like how much worse am I doing than I would have? So it's all an experiment. What's external and what's external. Yeah, I mean, psychiatrists, like, are, like, making their best guess all the time. It's just, like, you just, you're totally an experiment. So, I am more emotional because I'm not medicated, probably, but I, so I I do recognize that, like, my daughter is going through what my friend was going through, like, seeing her mom, you know, like, be a wreck a lot of the time. (laughs) But it happens like so often and I bounce out of it so fast. Like my daughter is not scared by it. It does not even damper her mood. You know, she smiles all the way through it and giggles and makes jokes. She does not worry about it. It's like when you see somebody stub their toe, like, you know, the toe is probably not broken. It hurts like hell for 30 seconds. You know, that is her response to me crying or, you know, needing to like take break or even like yelling or losing my temper, like she does not overreact. So I feel like, okay, for my own sake, it's such a personal decision, but like I hated the side effects I was having. They for sure were making things awful, like all the time. And so I would rather deal with you know, less smooth moods and not have side effects. And also like lithium and lamictal, like there's a lot of unknowns about what they do to your health if you're on them for more than 10 years, you know, it's not, they're not as safe as, you know, 
SSRIs or something like that. So it's, and benzos, you know, I know a lot of people get like really addicted to those and they can cause memory problems. And like I, you know, MS causes memory problems and executive function. Like I don't want to do anything that's going to, you know, be bad on my brain or any of my organs. I spoke with somebody, I had a musician on the show who was, I assume into his fifties at this point and was diagnosed with bipolar disorder fairly recently, you know, a couple of years ago. And every time you get diagnosed with something that that's a really big issue, you know, you start to sort of connect the dots, right? Like, oh, like you look at your past, even if it's alcoholism, you like look at your past, you're like, oh, like this is this was a cause for this, this this was a cause for this. My own experience is that, you know, I've I've been able to sort of address some of the issues, but there's never just been kind of a catch all uh, thing in my life. You know, he told me basically that that diagnosis, like he was like, yeah, this is kind of it found out this one thing about me and all of the really big issues that I've had have probably in some way or another been related to my bipolar disorder and being on medication has helped with that. Your situation is obviously complicated by the fact that you have at least two very large comorbidities here, uh, MS and bipolar disorder. Once you were diagnosed with either or both of those, whether it was clear how much of your personality and how much of sort of, you know, perhaps like mistakes you had made in the past were connected to these two very big things. Yeah, no, it's not clear. I I will probably never know where the personality line, I mean, it is really confusing when you look at your creative work and I've struggled with this like very, very much because with comics, with writing about my life, like I feel like my personality changes a lot and I have all I when I'm like hypomanic, I think I want to make something completely different. It's not comics, you know, it's something totally else. And I have made a lot of things that are like more leaning into that part of me. Is that where the fashion stuff came from? Yeah, yeah. And then when I then I always like want to hide it, throw it out, undo it, you know, like I create this big mess and then I have to clean it up. And so with comics, I have really chosen like not to lean into that. So even when I've written a few comics about hypomania, I've done it like from a stable place, you know, so it's really like looking at it from an objective position and not just trying to like make it with that mind. Yeah, I it's really like my comics are just, you know, a section of me it's not the full picture. And I feel like a lot of people wouldn't like the other parts of me. (laughs) I don't like a lot of parts of me. And I, you know, I don't want to like put it out there. I mean, there's another moment, I think, toward the end of the book where you are shredding your work or or old work. (laughs) It appears, I think you make, you're talking to your dad and you make reference to the fact that you've been doing this for several days. So clearly it wasn't like a momentary manic episode that that forced you to do that. What was the motivation there? Why did you go through and just shred all this stuff that you had made and clearly like had held on to for some reason? Oh yeah. I, I, it's like the binge and purge cycle is very much like it's all areas of my life. You know, I go through these phases where I need to clean everything up. Um, and I've gone through that cycle over and over again. I mean, it was at least two weeks of that full time during the summer. So I shredded all of my journals from high school and college, you know, page by page. <laughs> I like had to reread a, a certain amount of it just to make sure I wasn't getting rid of something I didn't, that I, you know, I'd want to keep. I've gotten rid of like yearbooks, like photographs, just everything. I always get rid of clothes, um, stuff I just don't think I'm going to use again. And I feel lighter and better afterwards. Um, I think during the pandemic, I really was just trying to get rid of habits, like mental habits and attachments to things, you know, like I just... I don't want to be clinging to anything, ideas. I don't know. I just want to be more free. And that helps me be more free, like not having to keep all this stuff. So I absolutely get that. You know, I live in a one bedroom apartment in New York. So the stuff like really starts to weigh on you after a while. And I I get that from clothing. I get that from from books. Um, And it is important, obviously, to purge these things so you don't become a, a hoarder. But... Artwork is obviously different 
in a lot of ways because it's it's something that was like very deeply personal to you at some point. Did you did you hold on to anything? Yeah, I held on to lots of things. I mean, I have like my house is full of paintings that I made, and you know, like I have all my. I've never done that with comics. I have never regretted anything that's actually in print. I've never tried to take it back or take it away. Um, I have all my original pages you know, and binders and stuff. But it's like, it was mostly figure drawings and like journals. So there's like stuff that I felt like I needed to keep kind of because you're trained to keep that stuff. You're trained so many rules about etiquette, you know, (laughs) how to like function in the world, but also like, you're not supposed to get rid, you're not supposed to throw out photographs or, you know, something handmade or whatever. And it's like, you know what? I don't ever want to see this again. So why on earth would I keep it? The journaling thing, I think a lot of artists hold on to that, you know, in in hopes that it will be some form of inspiration in the future, right? You know, do do you do you foresee yourself ever mining your early life in that way? I feel like I still can. You know, like I write comics about childhood memories and stuff, and you know that there's nothing to stop me anytime from just like sitting down and having memories and making comics. Um, I don't feel like there the stuff in my journal was so ridiculous. It was stuff I would never make comics about. It was like such idiotic details. Um, I would say I went to someone's house, house and I would name who got there first, how long I was there with this person and this person. Like for 20 minutes, it was just me and Matt, you know? <laughs> and then, it was more cataloging than journaling. Yeah, so. it was. It was cataloging. And like, I've done that, you know, I kept a mood chart for a long time. I've kept food diaries. I've, I've tried to like track, you know, all these things in my life. And then it was just like tracking my social life. And then I would summarize it you know and it was fun (laughs) or I'm so depressed you know but like no details no circumstances the things that I want to keep and there are some examples that I kept is when I wrote actual dialogue down because like any conversation that you could pull from college from your childhood whatever that's actually verbatim is super fascinating and always will be it's just like I don't know but like I, most kids don't write journals like that, you know, it wasn't until later. And I kept all those journals from, you know, my twenties on where I did transcribe inf- moments that are better. It sounds to me like you were ahead of figuring out that you had bipolar disorder. You were trying to kind of figure that out. If you were actually like sitting down and chronicling moods, you were, I don't know if you're trying to self-diagnose, but you were definitely trying to figure out what was going on with your brain. Yeah. Trying to find the pattern. Are you journaling now? I mean, is there a form of that in real time that ultimately is useful for the creation of comics? Yeah. I definitely write down every moment in conversation that I think might be a comic. Um, And if I don't have my journal around, I keep notes on my phone um, or just write it on a scrap of paper. Like when I sit down in my studio, I'll find all these notes that I don't remember writing, you know, and, you know, sometimes there's something that I definitely want to make a comic out of or body positions, you know, like I'll be sitting on the couch with my daughter and I'll think like this, here we are again in a posture I never would like wouldn't have planned to sit down like this, you know, but we're in this kind of funny, beautiful position that has like a really nice rhythm to it, uh, visual rhythm. And so I'll make a little sketch of that. You said earlier that uh, the, you've never felt ashamed of, uh, ashamed of a comic in the way that, you know, perhaps he would uh, sketch diary. Is that just because the process of making comics is so much more deliberate? Possibly. It's slower and more deliberate. I don't know. Maybe I've just always been better at editing I have hundreds of pages of rough drafts of comics that I am embarrassed about that I have thrown out, you know. (laughs) They never made it to the public. Yeah, like I was always able to take that space between the rough draft and the final version and use that time to say, no, gosh, I don't want to, you know, write about this. I mean, like Chlorine Gardens, um, that's a book where... I was diagnosed with MS, like, during that book. I wrote a 150-page, like, very traditional memoir about that whole experience that was, like, chronological and, you know, and I felt like there was a drama to that time in my life that felt like a film or something. It was like, oh, gosh, I'm suddenly living in a memoir. And then it was, like, not as interesting, you know? Like, so then I 
took like the 13 best pages from that rough draft from 150 and kept those and then filled in the rest of the book and my, you know, sort of scattered collage way of thinking. And that has really been like the structure that I've maintained. Um, My begging chart is a little bit different because it's like even more leaning into the vignette and the separate moment. And I'm never using narration really to connect you know, one piece to the next. And I know that that structure frustrates some people. (laughs) It's definitely like not, it is intentional that it's not super linear, you know? Um, And it's also not super theme-based. Like it has a structure that's something else, but it's like really as close to the way my mind works and as close to the way I want to experience life right now as I can get. Because I feel like the quality in any moment, like right now, if I'm really present to, you know, having this podcast with you, it doesn't really matter what happened to me this morning or what's going to happen this afternoon. It's not a narrative event. And it's just as connected to maybe another interview or a friend that looks like you or any of these things. It's uh, the way my mind puts things together is not hierarchical and not linear and not, I don't want it to be too predictable. And it doesn't, I'm not concerned about people like missing part of the story or misinterpreting it or getting a few facts wrong because like the facts don't matter that much. Yeah. I mean, obviously there are aspects in it that I think are rewarded if you have read more of your work. I mean, MS is part of it. You know, there's a moment early on when your daughter asks you, references the fact that somebody else has MS. And if you aren't clear from the outset that, that you are also dealing with that, you kind of lose a lot of context there. Right. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that like are just that are not explained <laughs> that you would have picked up earlier in a different book. I mean, another example of this, and this is something I noticed, I read a couple of the comics journal interviews that you've done over the years and you know, they'll reference a strip and you'll give some sort of additional context, which which changes, which changes your relationship to, this, to, to the piece, to the vignette, as you called it, which works on its own but is fundamentally transformed if you find out something else. And I think that the crying story is the perfect example of that. Because again, I can just sort of accept this on your own, that this you were just dealing, you know, you're having a bad day, you didn't know what, what was going on, you started crying out of a sudden, you get this additional context, it adds a lot to it. This sounds a lot like the self-editing process that, that you were alluding to. I suspect that that is one of the more difficult things figuring out not just to put in, but what to leave out. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I guess like, I think it's just more relatable. um, If you can, if you can take an experience and be more flexible with it, if it's not like this link in your story that has this meaning that had this, you know, preface and all this stuff, it's like people sit down and cry for so many reasons. And there is something connecting and familiar about, you know, you can relate to somebody in that moment. But if you know too much, if you know that they were crying, like it could introduce all kinds of things. Like if they're crying out of self-pity, you might not, you know, uh, you might not respond in the same way. Or if they're crying about something that you think is very super superficial, you know, um, you're not maybe going to have empathy or something like that. Um, or if they're crying about something that it seems like maybe too big of a deal, like that could even put you off. Um, I just think I want to connect with people because I think there's so much shared experience. Like I think one of the nicest things I've ever heard about my work is when people say, this is like what is going on in my house? You know, this is me. And that's also like one of my favorite feelings when I'm reading or watching TV and, and feel like I'm that character, you know, how does that happen? I think that's really magical. Um, but I think sometimes you have to get away from like cause and effect. Like if people get really attached to, well, I'm really responsible. I'm really good with money. It's because my mom gave me an allowance and, you know, set up the system. And it's like, well, other people are really good with money and didn't get an allowance, you know, and other people are bad with money. And like, how can you relate to that person having opposite traits? You know, like, I think that when we almost like give logic too much credit or pattern finding or whatever it is, you know, like we're trying so hard to like name everything and describe everything and define everything. Um, so I'm, I'm just trying not to do that. I'm trying to take things, even if I know what they are and try to look at them with less knowing 
going. Is that specific to, to the comic? I mean, is, is there an element of that in your own life? Or do you have the tendency to self-diagnose? I mean, I have this tendency to like obsessively analyze and compare all the time everything. <laughs> so yes, I'm trying not to do that. But I'm definitely trying not to do that in comics. Um, like I am trying to just embrace in the comics and in life like space and not knowing and disorder. I mean, even like activities, you know, my tendency was to be really controlling, like to take an activity you know, with a child even and think like, this is going to be ideal if we sit down and do this project, which I can name for this amount of time with no interruptions, and then it's going to be perfect. And we're going to be happy and calm, you know, and all these things get piled on. But like, in reality, you're interrupted, you know, like things are not nameable, you know, like you're in transition all the time. And I think about, you know, the in-betweens in animation, you know, where things get to be like kind of a mess. And I, my tendency is to always look for like the concrete, the still life, the, the vase in the center of the canvas, you know, and, and that seeking that kind of perfection, um, it, it drives me completely nuts. I, you know, and anybody, any kind of perfect idea that we're chasing, even if it's just like controlling our attention span, becomes, you know, maddening. Um, So I'm trying to really embrace like more chaos, more mess, less definitions, more unknowns, you know, I mean, I, I guess it's the pandemic and all the uncertainty, you know, like all this planning that people did and have done and continue to do, like a lot of it's undermined. If you're really, really attached to your plan, it's super frustrating. But if you really, like as a teacher, I don't even make a plan anymore. I just plan to be spontaneous all the time. It's like when you talk to your friend on the phone, you don't write down script, (laughs) write down like ideas, like topics that you're going to cover usually. You know, the conversation is what it is. And it's like often great because it's spontaneous. It flows from one thing to the other. And what results is usually um, better than what would have resulted if you had actually planned to have this conversation. So I try to write comics that way. I only write like, you know, 10, 20 pages ahead of where I am. You know, there's no, whatever plan I could make is not going to be as good as my spontaneous self. It's interesting though. I mean, cause there's just, there's something inherent in comics that is not only obviously when you're writing and drawing and editing yourself of kind of almost being able to obsessively control the situation because you're the only person writing it, but also in comics and in painting, which you also do, there's kind of an inescapable element of it that is just capturing the moment in time that is just capturing a certain image that's used to hopefully paint a broader picture or describe something larger. So like you're almost, you're almost trying to kind of work against these tendencies that are very much built into the medium. That's true. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. I mean, that's interesting. I should, I should start doing something else. (laughs) I should start doing performance now. (laughs) In this book, in my begging chart specifically, is there a, is there an arc that you see? Is there a way that these, if it's not chronological, you know, how, how is it, how is it sequenced? I mean, actually my begging chart is fairly chronological. (laughs) So, and it's, I mean, it's a lot of like family time. It's a lot of time with my daughter. You know, our relationship is definitely, you know, probably the theme that unites the book, but it's, um, you know, it started off with this discussion of imaginary friends and how much they irritate me, but then I have one of my own, which was kind of a grasp at something to help myself. You know, um, all the self-help books I read only make things worse. (laughs) So I sort of created an imaginary friend and there's a scene in the book where Robin comes in, you know, I'm lying in bed. So it's like, obviously I'm conjuring him like during these times when I am the most affected by, you know, fatigue and stuff and not feeling good. And he says, are you awake? And that's when the pandemic started. Um, It's that point in the book. So it is, does follow time. And after that, like, it's very subtle um, how the pandemic is affecting me because I'm already just like hanging out with my daughter all the time. Anyway, we just start taking walks and wearing masks, you know, at at times. Um, And then she starts, you know, really using like the Nintendo Switch a lot um, and just sort of being around more. Um, Um, I didn't want to lean too hard into the pandemic um, as a theme. I wanted to 
emphasize things that don't didn't change that much. I mean, your home life, my home life has been a topic that's been like at the center of my work and I wanted to keep it sort of the same. I mean, I, there's a lot of repetition in the book. It's it's a lot of unorganized time. I've been saying this a lot over the past year and a half, but I, I'm, I'm dreading a year, two years from now when all of the pandemic art starts coming out and we have yeah. to just deal with everything <laughs> that, was, that was created during this time period. Obviously, you know, in part because we'll want to have distanced ourselves from it. But I mean, is that part of the impulse to not write directly about the pandemic is just not to fall into the yes. cliche that everyone else is going to be doing? Yeah, not just because it's cliche, but exactly what you said. I know that I am not going to want to look at pandemic art right after this happens. And I think, you know, 20 years from now, people will really want to and then they will really enjoy looking back at this people who have made it something but i i've really been leaning into other things during this time i mean we got a puppy (laughs) you know like i definitely felt like i need to begin something new and i i hate puppies you know it's like i don't like babies because i don't want to be needed every second like of course they're cute and smell amazing and like nothing's better but like a puppy doesn't they're not predictable you know they're very needy and they do make me feel like very trapped but I just wanted something, even if it was going to be stressful, to be new, to make me feel like there is going to be a future because this puppy is going to eventually be a dog. And I don't know, it it has helped psychologically. It drives you nuts. But there are certain things that people, I think, have done as coping mechanisms that are much more interesting than like making art about the pandemic. But I'm interested in the things people do. I mean, I didn't bake sourdough bread or anything because it was like way too involved, but I changed my eating habits, you know, and I, there are certain trends or certain, like the shows that had nothing to do with the pandemic that aired during this time. I think like people are going to get so nostalgic about, you know, because like when you look back at this stressful time and you did make it, you know, through, then all of a sudden like everything is kind of like wrapped up in this bundle of like tenderness and Like, I knew I was going to feel that way while going through it. And so, like, I bought certain things knowing that they would be, like, really nostalgic to me afterwards. And I made photo albums and all this stuff. Just, I don't know. It's just really strange the way the mind works. The the way we, like, form attachments. Um, I mean, like, the period of my life when I was diagnosed with MS, I was, like, on a trip, you know. I was in... Northern Ireland when I got the MRI report. It was like in the middle of the night in a hotel, like far from home. And my feelings about, I was there to install a show, you know, and work with people. My feelings about that curator, um, Ben Crothers, um, and that place and that time, it is deep, deep, like love and gratitude that I feel like when I think about that. And I actually feel like it's one of my more warmest memories, you know, because I felt there's just something really when we're experiencing, facing loss or trouble or hard time and somebody's there with you, if it's like a new person or a new situation, like it just gets wrapped up in this bundle of comfort. I mean, like it could be something much smaller scale than like a medical diagnosis. Like when I started working at the Art Institute, like I was used to teaching, but like every new school is like stressful and different, you know? And I remember like going to Burlington Coat Factory after work, (laughs) you know, after another like super stressful, tense evening of work and shopping for something for my daughter. And it's like, now I want to go to Burlington Coat Factory like every day (laughs) to make myself feel better. (laughs) It's like, I didn't like that store before. And I don't, it's not like a great place. You'll get there. You'll go back and it just (laughs) won't. And none of that, it's not going to be, you know, it's not gonna be like a Proust moment for you. No, it's going to come flooding back. It's not, but I still am going to like keep wanting it for the rest of my life. You know, um, I'm, I'm very aware of that. It's being nostalgic for an abstraction. It's being nostalgic for a feeling that you associate with a place that has absolutely nothing to do with that place. It sounds like. Right, right. Well, and that's, I mean, I wrote about that in the book, like it wasn't about nostalgia, but I'm like lying in bed talking about like what this like fatigue feels like and the, this loneliness that comes on and all this stuff. And I'm, you know, when I got diagnosed 
it was one thing it's dealing with the diagnosis and the unknown, but then like I really started having symptoms and I really didn't think I was going to make comics again. My brain was such a mess. I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't answer an email. I couldn't like figure out a form or, you know, it was like, I was panicking so much. And when you have such high anxiety that also like really shuts your brain down, you know, and I was forgetting things. Like I used to have such a good memory. I'd keep track of everything. Um, I would forget all kinds of things and just make mistakes that I wasn't used to making. And I was even having like speech problems, you know, and it's like very stressful to do something visible when you're teaching or talking to people and like suddenly your speech is slurred or you say the wrong word, you know, and it's like the other person doesn't think it's a big deal that you said horizontal when you meant vertical, you know, but it's like when you're used to having like complete control over what you're saying all the time to not have control over your thoughts and what you say is like very scary. And then I would, I was having such mood problems, you know, I was overthinking everything. I was just like, I didn't think I'd be able to make comics again because I couldn't. I just would get into this like really awful like fatigue and like mental place where I couldn't make anything. Um, Stopped going to events too, because it was like way too much pressure to be in public when I was crying, (laughs) you know, unpredictably and, you know, like couldn't, you know, getting overwhelmed and I didn't know what would bring it on. So like, I didn't do anything when rat time came out. I didn't go to SPX. I didn't like, I did nothing. It's almost like it didn't happen. And then now, you know, then I like, started making comics like predictably again and sort of like figured out how to manage all these things and it's not like I'm not I don't know if I'm I guess I'm doing better but it's also like I've just like figured out enough techniques to sort of get beyond but like even now like I have no idea what I was saying to you at the beginning of this thought like my I just start talking and like all this stuff comes out is that a mess though or is that I mean that that's probably not it might just be me like yeah, I mean, but I don't think I was this way, but maybe it's the pan- I mean, who can separate out the factors, you know? Like I'm also getting older every year and I'm also, you know, like thing people change. Could be all because I'm on my phone all the time and like my attention span is like damaged from that or something. You know, like I just think I have different qualities, different skills and different like obstacles that I had a few years ago. Anyway, I was talking about like the mystery of nostalgia and how things sort of get bundled together, but also like the mystery of like pleasurable events. Like when I was really feeling like I'm not going to be able to like, like I still don't go out of the house after like 6 p.m. usually, you know, I'm extremely tired by nine. I am in bed and like I want to be there. So I stopped doing things in the evening and then I, you know, felt like really sad. That's another loss, you know, and a lot of people you know, during the pandemic, like, you're just sad because you don't get to do the things you got to do. And with, you know, disability, whatever, it was letting go of that stuff. But it was just like that feeling like moods are so unpredictable. Like, why can't I just enjoy sitting in my yard at 3pm instead of 7pm? And like, why can't I enjoy having a phone conversation with somebody as much as like seeing them in person? You know, like you can. Sometimes it is just as good. I mean, drinking, I went through the same thing. Like when I stopped drinking, it was like, but everything good in my life happened when I was drinking, you know, like how can I enjoy life? And then you build new associations and you realize like, oh, you know, all these things, like it wasn't Burlington Coat Factory that actually mattered. It was the fact that like, sometimes I really want to feel free. Sometimes I really want to feel, you know, connected to somebody or whatever you enjoy, excited, whatever. And I can get that some other way. But it is really hard to get those things when you're feel- when you're in bed a lot. I could drinking two years ago, and mostly just as an experiment to see if I could. But there is this thing where Yeah, like a lot of the best moments you had were tied to moments where you were drinking, obviously, because you were young and you were out socializing. At a certain point, as you get older, you start to realize that you assigned arbitrary ideas to things like drinking. One day, am I going to be old and boring and and stop drinking? As we go through life, there are just these sort of like ideas that we pick up for whatever reason. And when you really examine them, you realize that there's really... There's nothing to them. That's that's exactly what I was trying to say. <laughs> Said much better 
<laughs> in a much shorter time. But I mean, I feel that way about like holidays or birthdays or whatever. Like I just like, I'm so sick of this. Like we have to make this day special because it means this. And it's like, that is like, it's just an old stupid tradition. I'm- I get super melancholy during birthdays. Yeah. I don't know if that's like a common thing, but I, I think it is a little wistful. Yeah. And holidays, you know, because you are mostly disappointed that you're not doing something really fun because you have to work or the weather's crappy or whatever. And any other day, you're not holding up to that standards. You don't have those expectations, you know, whatever. Just these sort of false notions of, yeah, it's just false beliefs about patterns and what makes things important. I mean, like one of my favorite things about the pandemic is all these people who got married on Zoom, you know? I think that that is so awesome. Like their weddings were so simple and casual and memorable. Yeah, memorable. And I don't know, like, I think like wedding culture is the absolute pinnacle of this um, sort of, yeah, psychotic organized (laughs) organization, artificial import. Yeah. I mean, it's great to have like a big party, but like, I don't know. But it just becomes so much more than that. It's so much about like the bride and groom or bride and bride or whoever's getting married, you know, or like celebrities for the day. It needs like the special treatment instead of just like as two people who are in love and like are surrounded by their loved ones, like celebrating this fact, you know. I realized this like several years ago, and it's something that I have had a lot of trouble verbalizing. I've, I've said this to people, and it's like, and it's something I can only speak about in really abstract terms. But when I was growing up, and and I was thinking about getting older and life. You tend to think of things in in terms of like movies or or TV shows or comics in terms of like how one progresses through their life. And and the thing that nobody tells you is that there's just there's no break in between. There's no, there's no you know it's just life is just as one long fluid thing. It's it's one event after another. You know, there's no commercial break. There's no moment to to pause in between these events. So I think that one of the things that we have to do and one of the reasons why we have ritual is to insert these signposts inside of life, insert these like cinematic events, even if there is a bit of artificiality to them in order to really bring form to our lives. That's a really interesting way of putting that. I feel like I do have an intermission in my life like all the time (laughs) because I, I mean, I guess it's unusual. I do spend hours a week sitting on the couch doing absolutely nothing. I'm not, I'm not doing anything like formal meditation. You know, I'm just but I'm not watching or listening to anything. I'm thinking or not thinking. I'm just sitting and doing nothing. And that is something a lot of the time I think, well, maybe I'm processing. Maybe that's what I'm doing. Or maybe I am, you know, I am resting. I'm taking a break, whatever. I'm reviewing things in my mind, um, planning, whatever. But yeah, those events, events do have a way of just changing the way you feel. I always thought it was more like you have events because and milestones and stuff because you are like filling up yourself with energy, you know, like you have a party and you might not even have that much fun. It's like a pit stop in the race. I never think of them as, I think of them as like the total opposite of an intermission because they're so active. You know, since you are doing memoir autobiographical stuff and you've been doing it for a number of years now, do you get the sense that releasing a book is ultimately when you look back on your life going to be a way these books as chunks of your life will be how your brain organizes things um no i don't think so um i've been really careful to sort of begin and end every book so that it doesn't feel that way um i don't like that i don't i mean if i controlled the way publishing happens <laughs> i would finish a book and release it like immediately and then get to enjoy it would be based on like my own time schedule and my mood and stuff like that it's uh it's very hard to like finish a book and then wait a year and then you're thrown back into that book like it's very jarring it's very like right now i feel like this frantic clinging to this time it's like oh this is my book release this is really special i'm not gonna get this much attention again until the next one (laughs) and i'm already like like it's just starting the book actually hasn't come out yet you know um it's like a couple days away and i'm like grieving the the pit that happens (laughs) after a big project i don't want like more things that cause highs and 
and lows. Oh, what really feels good to me is like looking at the stack of books that I've put out and it doesn't really matter what when one ends and one begins and just looking at the whole, you know, and not thinking about time and sectioning up my life. Like to me, it doesn't matter that much if a page came out of sunburning or rat time, you know, or my begging chart. It's just like, it's all one. There's a moment where you're sitting on the beach with your dog and talking about how you're going to be nostalgic for that moment. And then I think like three minutes later, you feel nostalgic for it. And and that was something that I definitely felt like I feel like, at least abstractly that I understood. It's an interesting idea, right? Of, of, of being nostalgic in a moment as it's happening, you know, and whether or not that is a good impulse and whether or not that actually serves to take you out of that moment. Yeah. I mean, I don't think nostalgia generally is a good impulse at any time because it, it's, it's clinging to something. It's like, it's wanting. But you were clinging to the moment. You were like, you, you were in the moment. You were yeah, like clinging. I was in the you moment. Like being, I was clinging. It's painful to cling. You're being both nostalgic and mindful in a strange way. Right. I think, I think mindful is better. <laughs> um, and I think you can be both at the same time. But the more mindful I am when I'm nostalgic, nostalgic or sentimental or whatever is like the more... I'm aware of like the pain in it, pain of wanting something to last a little longer or to be a little bit more intense or to be like that more often. You know, like I really enjoy, I'm trying to be more mindful of the times when I'm not notice when I'm not feeling nostalgic, you know, um, I guess that's like really what I'm, what is trying to do with my begging chart is like all these times that aren't inherently special that don't necessarily like feel like intensity you know that we wouldn't write about that we would forget about that is life (laughs) you know what happens if i start just like paying attention and like valuing those times you know more where i don't feel like everything's perfect where the lighting kind of sucks you know where i'm feeling slightly irritated or just not feeling anything maybe i'm a little tired or something but there's like there's less pressure there's so much pressure when you're clinging to something even if it's something good i i i almost don't want good things to happen because i know myself i guess like so whisked away and I'm better at handling something more subtle. 